Good to see you this morning. Um, I'm going to uh, preach out of a different translation of the Bible this morning, so um, you may not have this copy with you. Um, some of you have been talking about how it's hard to understand the Bible. Some use the kids' Bible. Is that cool? To preach this morning? Um, not really. I mean, sort of, not really. Uh, what I'd like to do is uh, something a little different. We, um, we're calling this morning uh, Throwback Sunday. It's become a tradition here. The Sunday after uh, Christmas, it started two years ago with Jason Martin, uh, the gentleman that was over here leading worship, and he did all hymns, and we just did kind of a stripped-down, old-fashioned service. Now, for us, this is old-fashioned. I know some of you may come from a more traditional setting, and this is kind of modern, which is fine. But for us, this is Throwback Sunday. And so what we're going to do is a little different. Since we have our kids in here with us this morning, I'm going to do what um, I grew up experiencing in church with, with kids' ministry, and that was the children's sermon. So I don't know if you remember those, where the pastor invites the kids to come down front for just a special moment. But since it's family worship weekend, kids... I'm going to invite you to come on down. Uh, this is anybody in the room who is comfortable coming down, who is under the age, Kirk, of sixth grade or under. Okay? All right, all right. So come on down, kiddos. Just right down here on the front and have a seat. All right. Hey, Cash, good to see you. Right down here, I want you to sit and face me. Can you sit in a little circle here? Tell you what, I'm going to jump right down here. Oh, it's a good-looking crew of kiddos. Come on down, come on down. All right. Everybody good? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm actually going to read you a story this morning about Jesus and some kids. There was a time uh, in Jesus' life where his disciples were arguing. Do you ever argue? You know what arguing is when you, yeah, you're arguing with somebody? Well, his disciples were arguing about who was the most important person in the kingdom. And they were telling the kids, go away. Jesus doesn't have time for you. And so this is a story we're going to read this morning. Everybody ready? All right. Jesus' friends were arguing. Who was the most important helper in God's kingdom? They wanted to know. I am, said James. No, you're not, said Peter. I am. Nonsense, Matthew said. I'm the cleverest. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, no, am too. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it does sound familiar to us parents. This silliness went on and on like that for some time. You see, Jesus' friends had started thinking they had, some, they had to do something to make themselves special to Jesus. That if they were the cleverest or the nicest or something, Jesus would like them best. But they had forgotten something. Something God had been teaching his people all through the years. That no matter how clever you are, or how good you are, or how rich you are, or how nice you are, or how important you are, none of it makes any difference. Can you see it now? Because God's love is a gift. Do you guys know what gifts are? There you go. Do y'all know what gifts are? When somebody gives you something, that's right. And so God's love is a gift. And as anyone can tell you, the whole thing about a gift is it's free. Who knows what free means? It doesn't cost any money. That's right. God's love doesn't cost us any money. It doesn't cost us any time. Did you know that this morning before you even woke up, God loved you? Before you did anything good or bad? Jesus loves us. That's right. Do you know that song? All right. Well, all you have to do is reach out your hand and take the gift. So while Jesus' friends were arguing, some people who knew all about getting gifts, in fact, you might say, they were expert gift getters. Are you guys expert gift getters? Yeah, like I got it. Uh-huh. Really? 
Well, they had come to see Jesus. And who were they? Does anybody know? They were the little children just like this. And so Jesus' helpers tried to send them away. And you know what they said to the kids? Jesus doesn't have time for you. He's too tired. But they were wrong. Jesus had time for children. And he's, you know what he said to his disciples? Don't you ever send them away. Bring them to me. Now, let me ask you some questions. Think about this. If you had been there, what do you think? Would you have had to line up quietly to see Jesus? Do you think Jesus would have asked you? I see that. That's awesome. Do you think Jesus would have asked you how good you've been before he'd give you a hug? What do you think? Would you have had to be on your best behavior or get dressed up or not speak until you're spoken to? No. Or would you have done just what these little children did? Guess what they did? They ran straight up to Jesus and let him pick them up in his arms and he swung them around and he kissed them and he hugged them and he sat them in his lap and he listened to their stories. You see, children love Jesus and they knew they didn't need to do anything special for Jesus to love them. All they needed to do was run into his arms. And so, that's just what they did. Well, after all the laughing and games, Jesus turned to his helpers and this is what he said. No matter, and we're gonna say this to all your grown-ups today. You want me to say this to the grown-ups? All right, this is for the grown-ups. No matter how big you grow, never grow up so much that you lose your child's heart. Full of trust in God. Be like these children. They are the most important in my kingdom. All right, high five. You guys did great. Oh, that was not good. Hands up, ready? Here we go, and then you're going back to your seats. All right, go find your seats. Cash, five. Psh, psh. No, Give me five. Can you give me five, Karis? Good to see you. All right. Well, you want more? Okay. Well, that went well. I was kind of curious. I don't normally do that if you're a visitor. It's kind of new on me. And, uh, and so that's the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, highly recommend it if you're looking for a Bible to read to your, your youngins. All right. So John chapter one is where we're going to be. As you turn there, just a couple of announcements. Uh, really uh, an important announcement for you would be um, this first Wednesday. This Wednesday is first Wednesday. It's a time where we come together, the whole body, for one uh, service, and we share communion together. Um, this first Wednesday is going to be a time of casting vision and talking about 2013 as a church. It's really important for you guys to be here, to be a part of that conversation. I'm going to be talking about the upcoming sermon series, as well as a lot of the things coming up in the way of change and exciting growth. So this Wednesday night at 630, I want to invite you to be here for that. All right. John chapter 1. This is a beautiful passage of scripture. Uh, we're ending the Jesus series that took us through Christmas. In the weeks leading up to Christmas, we let Matthew and Mark introduce baby Jesus to us. On Christmas uh, Eve, Eve, we let Luke and Matthew introduce Jesus to us and describe him to us. Today, we're going to allow John, the disciple who you might say was the closest to Jesus, He's described in his own writing as the one in whom Jesus loved, so we know they had a really close bond. This is John's introduction of Jesus to us, and so we'll finish the Jesus series today to set us up for the new series next week from John chapter 1. Now, uh, who would agree with me that, the, uh, that, that church jargon can be confusing? Yeah. 
And, and part of it is the fact that we confuse it so much. But words that we throw out and we don't really know what they mean and we use them, they mean this in this setting. Or, and you might even say we have our own kind of ghetto language as a Christian culture. We use words that you don't use anywhere else. Words like hallelujah, words like worship, words like praise. You might use that one somewhere else. But we do a lot of weird things in here and we say a lot of weird things. And there's some words that we use that kind of get interchanged. Uh, words like law and truth and word. And we're going to be talking today about Jesus, who was the Word who became flesh, full of grace and truth. And so I want to begin with just a casual conversation on what it means when we talk about the Word. Because more than likely, there's a Bible in your lap or close by, there's a Bible, and you've heard the Bible called God's Word. Okay? Now, there's some reasons why we call it that. Uh, the Bible itself calls itself God's Word. In the New Testament, it refers to the Old Testament, especially when God speaks as God's Word. We know that God created with his word. Um, you also find references to the message that Jesus was preaching in his public ministry as the word of God. That, that's one of the references. But there's a real specific use of the word word that will apply to what we're going to talk about today. And that's when it's used in reference to Jesus himself. And he's called the word. Now that's a strange thing to call a person, isn't it? I mean, all the nicknames I ever got, I don't think I ever got one that strange where somebody called me Word. Kind of sound, That sounds ghetto, doesn't it? Word. But John introduces Jesus to us this way in the first five verses and calls him the Word. And what we understand by this description of Jesus is this, that John, rather than starting with a baby in a manger, which is Jesus' humanity, he starts with Jesus' deity and describes him as one who was there with God and was God. So when John calls him the word, he's referring to God's creative nature, his creativeness, if you will, um, not in terms of how we think, well, that person's creative or that person is creative, but God's ability to create something from nothing, okay? Not take just paint and paint a picture, but take nothing and cause it to be something. So, so in, in, in referring to Jesus as the word, he's referring to Jesus as this creator God, not only that, he's referring to Jesus' eternal existence. So instead of starting with he was born in a manger where we think that's where his life began, John wants to say, no, 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 no. He is eternally existent and all-powerful. And that's what he means when he calls Jesus the word. Okay, Now that sets us up then to talk about the difference between law and truth because these are two words that get confused a lot. A lot of times people will call the Bible God's law. Or we'll refer to this as the truth. Now, here's why it needs to be separated. There's a difference between law and truth, okay? Now, both are very important and very, have a very unique relationship to one another, but they are distinctly different. The, the law is this. A law is this. It is a legal uh, rule set up by the authority of the author. So, if the city of Fort Worth issues a law... They're the authority over that law. That law may not apply in Grand Prairie, right? Uh, so you have different versions of laws, social laws, civil laws, moral laws. In our house, we have Hudson's law, okay? Hudson's our oldest. He's the five-year-old. And he comes up with his own rules for Calvin, his little brother. And I'm always having to remind him, Hudson, hey, who is the daddy? Oh, you are. That's right. Who makes the rules? You do. Okay, because like we got Cal, um, a, a little indoor basketball set, and then a little indoor slide for Christmas. And so we set him up in the playroom, and we sent the kids into the play. And before, you know, something caught my eye. Calvin, 
our 19-month-old, was on top of his slide shooting baskets. And I thought, well, this is dangerous and fun at the same time. And I came in there and found out this was a new law that Hudson had set for Calvin. No, 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 Hudson, or no, 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 Cal, you need to climb up on your slide. And he gave him the ball to shoot. And so we have in our house Hudson's law, which I find myself sounding like a rapper when I'm always having to say, Hudson, who's your daddy? And like, you are, like, that's right. Who sets up the rules? You do, that's right. And so, so law, then, we understand, is based on its the authority of its author. So when we get to God's law, that's different from the city of Fort Worth's law or Hudson's law. So in the Bible, the Old Testament, specifically the first five books, is referred to as the law, as we're gonna see in this text in just a minute. Now, truth is related to, but different from, law. And, and we use those synonymously oftentimes in the church, and it gets a little confusing. Truth, uh, this is just kind of cool. Later on in our service, we're going to have a baptism of a young lady, and her name is Alethia. Alethia in Greek means truth. So let's talk for just a minute about what truth means and how it's different from law. When you see the word truth in Scripture, it has a very specific meaning. And so it first of all means what is right and what is true. And that's different from just a law, isn't it? Hopefully our laws represent what's right. But when you see the word truth, it's also talking about what is actually true, truly right, or truly righteous. The word also means this, ultimate reality. Okay, so if something is true, what, what, like if the Bible says something is true, what it's saying about that thing is that it is the ultimate source of reality. Okay, so that's different from the law. Laws, we hope, are right and, and, and are good and represent good versus evil. But truth says this is ultimate reality. It's what is right and what is true. Now, you're wondering, why do we go through all that? Okay, that sets us up then to read really one verse of Scripture, which is John 1, 14. So let's do this together. John chapter 1, verse 14. Here's how... John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, introduces baby Jesus and the Word. Now we see why we went through all that, right? This all-powerful, all-existent God became flesh and dwelt among us. What a profound statement. The Word, God, became flesh and he dwelt among us. And what we're going to understand is what God did in becoming a baby in a manger, growing to a full man and going to the cross, was this. Not that he ever put aside his deity, but instead, he, he was always God, instead he veiled his glory. Now think about that for a minute. God veiled his glory by becoming a man, beginning with a baby in a manger. And so John is going to say, this is, this is what Christmas is about. It's about God veiling his glory, putting himself in human form, and being born, becoming a baby. Now, we know that um, later on in this gospel, uh, John, uh, Jesus is praying to God. You remember one of the things he asked God to do? I don't know if you remember this or not. This is um, in chapter 17. He says, God, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world existed. What's he saying? God, I'm ready for my glory to be unveiled. 33 
years, plus or minus, Jesus was on earth with his glory veiled. People misunderstood him. They, misrec- they didn't recognize him. They, he was misrepresented. All that while, God's glory was veiled. And Jesus is praying to the Father, I'm ready to go to the cross, be buried in the grave, resurrect, and for my glory to be unveiled. Now, we could follow this theme throughout the New Testament, but if you get to the end of your Bible to the book of Revelation, you know who that was written by? This same John, one of Jesus' closest friends. Now, think about this for a minute. Like, I don't know that truth is any more accurate truth than when it's spoken by one of your really good friends. Think about that. Like, I can run a pretty good bluff, especially for an hour on Sunday. Some of you I spend a little bit more time with, Okay, and so I can put on the, this, this persona that I'm just a nice guy all the time and I'm always ready just to cry for you and love on you. The reality is I'm just not always that way. Now, one of my good friends like Jason Lewis who's leading worship can get up here and tell you some things that are really true about me, right? Because he really, really knows me. He spent time with me. Now don't bring my wife up here because I'll lose my job. But the reality is those who know us best can speak the things that are most real and true about us. So John, right, this is one of Jesus' closest disciples. He's the one writing down the revelation. Now think about this. He got to sleep and eat with Jesus. In the opening chapter of Revelation, here's what he says. This is chapter 117. He says, when I saw him, who's the him? Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. What had just happened to John? This was the guy he walked with for two, three years. Here's what happened. At this point, Jesus' glory had been unveiled, and he was no longer Jesus in human form with veiled glory. He got to see Jesus as he fully was, and he fell on the ground as though he was dead. And then Jesus speaks grace uh, to him and says what? Fear not, for I am the first and the last. And John's able to to rise and, and to write the rest of the revelation. So What John is saying to us in this gospel is, I'm gonna tell you about the one who veiled his glory, took on flesh, became one of us to do something very specific. Now, let's read the rest of verse 14. So he became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I really wanna spend the rest of our time talking about what John is saying here, okay? So right now, we, we use that phrase full of in a lot of different ways, don't we? Say, man, you're full of it. Uh, we we, we kind of we use that as slang. Somebody might be full of humor. Um, when we say that about a person, though, we don't literally mean that they're full of humor, right? They're just funny a lot. Um, we say you're, you're full of it, or um, like a glass of tea, for example. You would say it's full, but the reality is there's usually room left at the top because we're clumsy, So fool is just kind of this random word. In this particular context, though, this word literally means something specific. And here's what it means. To be filled to completion or to be completely occupied. A space that's completely full and occupied. Like I was thinking, it reminds me of Top Gun where um, they're, I don't know if you remember the movie. I don't know why I'm even going here. They're going to do the flat by and they request the fly by. They're like, negative Ghost Rider, the pattern is full. What they're saying is the, the pattern is occupied. Don't you dare fly through here. And then he flies by and spills his coffee, says a bunch of bad words, don't watch it. So, but literally what, the, what John is saying is that the space that he consumed was full, was occupied with two things. What are those two things? Grace and truth. 
Now, we did all that intro to get to a point where we could really understand and wrap our, our minds and our hearts around the idea of Jesus being full of truth and full of grace. So he's going to go on to say, um, verse 15, something about John the Baptist. And then in verse 16, he says this. And from his fullness, that's that word again. And from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, I'm trying to wrap my mind around this idea of Jesus being full of grace. And it forces me to think about how the Apostle Paul tried to describe God's grace towards us. One, I don't think our brains are big enough to comprehend how much grace God has poured out in our lives. Two, I don't think we like to think about it because then it presents the, the need for his grace. And we are a people who typically... Um, own our sin to a point that's comfortable. Let's just be honest. The, the one place in this world where you should be able to be completely honest and transparent about everything that you do and think should be the church that represents God's grace. Yet, this is the place most often we put on the thickest facade. And we use generic terms like, you know, God forgave all my sin, and we don't get specific, do we? So to understand the fullness of God's grace, though we, we probably will never get to the full capacity until we're like John, completely unveiled in his glory, we've got to get real honest about our sin. Now, um, Paul wrote some remarkable things about grace and sin. Just wanted to read something to you from uh, Romans chapter 5. This is how he ends chapter 5. Uh, Paul says this, The law came to increase the trespass. Well, that's weird. God gave us a law to make more sin? No. What did God's law do? It revealed the sin that was already there. So law has an important function, right, in our spiritual journey. It reveals our need for something. It reveals our inadequacy. It reveals where we need something. So when Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount preaching through the the Ten Commandments, this is not lifestyle advice on how to live in the kingdom. This is Jesus. He actually says it. Unless somebody fulfills this perfectly, he has no place in the kingdom. What's he doing? He's saying what? You have no hope unless God would somehow give you grace. So all the law does for us, when you read the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament is what? Shows us hopeless. It does for me. It it renders me in a state of going, I will never get this right. Even on my good days, I don't get it right. And so Jesus came, not just full of grace, but full of first what? Truth. Before grace has any relevancy to us, there's got to be a need exposed here. I I love how Paul will go on in this passage and say this. He says that the law came to increase trespasses, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You can never out-sin God's grace. I love that. I love it. He goes on to say, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading us to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that would lead us then to go, well, wait a second. Maybe I should just go on the sin rampage here, right? I mean, if God's grace can't be outrun, then the very next verse, you know what it says? What shall we say then? Should we just go on sinning so that God's grace can abound? No, no. 
Because see, God's grace is not simply God saying, it's okay, just go do what you want. God's grace is a cleansing grace. God reaches into the depths of who you are. That's why we lift our hands and say they're clean, not because we haven't been sinned, but because God has washed them clean. Every, every bit of sin's grasp in your life has been removed and cleansed. That should change us, is what God's word would say. To say, you know what? Like, gosh, I'm so glad that's out of my life. I never want to go back there again. God's grace, when it's really God's grace, will have an effect on us. It begin to change our motives and the way we think and the way our heart longs for things. Paul will even go on to say, after, after, after God transformed my heart, I started to want to be holy. Pro, right? I didn't get it all down. It's just, here's what's changed. Now I wanted to be holy. Now I wanted to do the right thing. There was this new longing of, for rightness within me. Uh, Paul will also describe God's grace in Ephesians to help us understand this grace upon grace or God's grace abounding in this way. Uh, in Ephesians 1.7, he says, in, in him, being Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, through the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to, is this up there? What? The riches of his grace. This is a phrase Paul just can't get away from when he tries to explain God's grace. The riches, the wealth of God's grace. Next chapter, he says a very similar thing. Uh, starting in verse four, he says, but God being, what? Rich in mercy. Yeah, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by what? Grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. So this whole God saving me is about God displaying how rich he is in grace, which means what? I racked up a pretty good deficit. So if I'm a person in church who says I've received God's grace, what I'm saying is I'm a pretty accomplished sinner. I am pretty good at rebelling against God and doing my own thing and following a path that leads to death. I'm really good at that. I don't just kind of need God in my life to make me better, inspire me towards doing the right thing. I need a complete transformation from the inside out. And so what John wants to do in introducing Jesus is say this. He was full of, completely, completely. The, the, the pattern was full in Jesus' life. Completely full of grace. For us. I love the storybook Bible, how it presented um, grace as a gift. And then for our kids who go to school, they always have to line up quietly, right, to get the teacher's approval. They have to do the right thing. Not, and so I love how it goes through all the list of rules we give our kids so that they can be rewarded as being good and saying, you don't have to do any of this stuff to get God's grace. How we need to hear that as adults two things I think would change dramatically for you this year. If you could meditate, grow in the fullness of God's grace in your life, one, you would become a much more humble person. Okay, It would bring with it a whole lot less self-righteousness and judgment towards others. I think it would. I'm included in that you. Okay, Two, I think our, our worship would increase. And I'm not just saying we'd get louder and we'd lift our hands more, but I'm saying the capacity of our love for God expressed in worship would grow. We say, wide is your love and grace. That wideness would never quit ending. It would just get wider and wider. Every time you read a verse about God's grace, you meditate on God's grace, you think about God's grace, you sing about God's grace. The capacity 
of understanding God's grace just gets wider and wider. You know what you do with sins that you think you remember from way back when that you've never confessed? Have you ever thought about that? Well, I didn't confess this one. You know what you do with those? You let those sins remind you of that never-ending grace that continues to trickle even into things you forgot. That's what you do. Did you know that? You don't have to be a perfect sin repenter to be forgiven. It's a humble state of bowing yourself before God and saying, I am, I'm, I'm rendered hopeless. I can't obey the law. I can't be holy on my own. I, matter of fact, I'm really good at not being holy. I bow before you. I've been before you. And Jesus, like he did with John, puts his hand on your shoulder and says, hey, don't be scared. Look up at me. Don't be scared. Stand up. And just like we talked about with these kids, he embraces us and pulls us in. We say, oh, but geez, I'm just so ugly and dark. If the church ever found out about that one time that this happened, Jesus would look at you and go, what are they going to do? Everybody who walks in the room has that one time that should have never happened that you hope nobody ever finds out about. I've got more than enough grace. I'm rich in grace. I have more than enough to wash that completely out of your life. To get rid of the guilt, the shame, the residual effects, completely clean you up. John says, you want to know what God looks like? We saw what he looked like in Jesus. Full of truth. He's a God of ultimate reality. He's a God who writes moral law that's not to be adjusted. Can I just give you some insight on the Ten Commandments so they don't just always frustrate you? You know what you should do? Read those as a character sketch of who God is because that's what they're intended to be. Hebrews is going to say that the law was just a shadow of the good things to come. The Ten Commandments is just a reflection of who God is. Perfect holiness, perfect charity towards men, perfect love. This is everything that you read in the Ten Commandments and go, I just don't measure up. Guy says, that's right. I'm describing myself to you. And that's what you do. You should increase our worship and go, wow. And you still want to welcome me in? Just one last thought on, on that from Hebrews 10. I'll just read it for you. This will be one of the last passages I read. For since the law... Um, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Think about that in our conversation today. The law is just a reflection of true reality. Who is God? It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. I'm so glad we don't butcher cows in the church anymore. Not only would it be just nasty in here, what Hebrews is saying, it doesn't work. It might remove your guilt for a second. It might even make you feel more guilty because an animal had to die, but it won't cleanse you. It won't fix you. Verse two, otherwise they would have ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers, that's us, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. These sacrifices there, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of the sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. Okay, so think about that. The Old Testament's version of taking away sin, Hebrews author is saying, it's impossible for the blood of a goat or a bull or even a precious lamb, unless he's the son of God, to take away your sins. It's impossible. You know what else goes in line with that? It's impossible to give enough money to charity or to the church or to help a homeless person or to help a family. It's impossible to give enough money to take away your sins. It's impossible to give enough money to make God like you. It's impossible for us to be good enough at the Ten Commandments 
to ever be patted on the back by God and go, oh, just good job, you. Good job. You're just such a, I just love the way you dress for church. I love the money you give. And you just did a great job at the Ten Commandments. In the same way, it's impossible for a bull to cleanse our sins. It's impossible for us by our actions, our deeds, and our words to ever, ever accomplish grace. And that's the good news for us today. Jesus says, hold the phone, stay right there, stay right where you're at. I'm gonna come full of truth and grace. I'm gonna live a perfect life on your behalf. Then, with my glory veiled, I'm gonna go to the cross, die for your sins. I'm gonna take it all with me, every bit of it, even the ones you can't remember, to the grave. I'm gonna bury them there. Then I'm gonna raise from the grave. You know what that means for you? If you believe in me, then all your sins stay in the grave and you yourself will be resurrected in eternal life. And then, do you guys remember what happened um, at the cross to the temple curtain? It's torn. God's glory was beginning to be unveiled. Look at how John ends this in chapter, chapter one, just the last verse in this section. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. But this one I'm talking about, this word, full of trace, truth and grace, he has made him known. Here's how I'd like to end our, our time in the word this morning. I wanna, I wanna pray for you and, and really just before, in just a moment, we're gonna have a, a, young, a young lady come up to be baptized to express to you guys that she's trusted in this Jesus for her forgiveness. At a very, very young age, I think she's four or five, already beginning to understand that she has a rebellious heart and that she can't be perfectly good on her own and she needs Jesus's grace. Now for us adults, isn't that challenging? that we could be as honest and real with our own sin, that what we might receive, we might have faith in a God who forgives like that and receive his grace that like just penetrates into the depths of who we are. Like, I just go on and on. Men who, man, you're struggling with some really dark stuff like right now. It's not yesterday's sin. Like it's last night's or today's sin that's really got you bound. Like you need to hear that. God's grace is, is a place for you to leave that. By hiding it from God, you're not making him any more proud. You're not fooling him. You need to understand that. That's how good God. This is supposed to be the instrument of God's grace, the church. This is the place. This is the place for you to get that junk out. Ladies, same thing. I know history goes way back. Um, and, and some of you have got some things from your past you just, you're not proud of. And on, on those rare occasions, it comes back to haunt you. Something will remind you of a decision you made, something you did, a compromise in your life. And so, like, today is a day that you submit that to the grace of Jesus and go, whoa, he was not, he didn't just have a lot of grace, he was rich in grace. And he's got enough to cover this. Maybe we can end our service today, if you so dare, raising your hands in worship to say, I've been cleansed by the grace of Jesus, and I'm raising holy hands. I'm raising holy hands. I want to pray for you and... Like I said earlier in the service, if there's um, somebody you'd like to talk with or have somebody pray with you or over you, um, we'll have our prayer partners um, at the back. And, uh, and they typically stand in front of the little window over here so you know who they are. They don't have a, a lanyard on or anything, but you'll be able to tell who they are. They're back there and they're ready to pray with you. If you want to find out more information about becoming a Christian, these are the ones who are prepared to talk with you and help lead you through that decision. Let me pray for us and I invite the worship team to come back up. Um, Father, we are so thankful for a grace that we can't comprehend. 
And God, really, the, the ability to comprehend it has to do with our ability to comprehend our need for it. And uh, so, God, I'm just going to pray for something odd today, God. Would you, would you show us the reality, the truth of our sin this morning? That's such an uncomfortable thing to pray for, God. Would you, would you not let our minds block out those things from our past that continue to haunt us? God, even as I'm just praying right now and thinking, would you just right now in all of our minds and hearts bring those things to the surface that we continue week after week, year after year to try to suppress and push away? Could today be a day that we bring those things into the richness of your grace? God, wash over and cleanse us. God, allow us to to grow in our understanding of your grace this year, we pray. Jesus' sweet name.
Amen. You guys have a seat. Amen. All right. You clapping for Jesus? Good. Um, I, I really like that line that we are to look full in his wonderful face. I don't know if eye contact is important to you, but eye contact is one of the hardest things to do when you're steeped in guilt and shame. And uh, so it's important for us in our family when I'm disciplining Hudson to make sure he maintains eye contact, right, and he hears me out. But it's equally important, if not more important, that um, he looks at me in the eyes when I tell him I love him and I forgive him. And so I love that we're singing about a God who says, don't just come to me cowered down. Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, they got to see his backside, but, but Jesus is saying, I, I get your sin, but I want you to look me in the eyes. And so I'll leave you with that thought today. Um, we're getting ready for baptism, and uh, before uh, they come up, just a couple things. Um, there's always an interesting conversation that arises when a parent is, uh, wants to come talk about their child being baptized, and the question is, I don't know if they're ready yet. And so I get that question a lot. Um, is it too early? You know, when, I don't want to hold them off, but I don't want them to get to a point in their life where they would say, you know what, I didn't know what I was doing then, but now I do. And so here's what I always say when a parent says that to me, and I share it with you today. Um, first of all, if your child is, uh, professes Christ as a young child at four, five, six, seven years old, is baptized, and then at 16, comes home from youth camp and says, now I understand and I think I'm really saved. What are you losing to begin with? And I would say this, if you don't have those conversations, I would be concerned that the first salvation wasn't real because here's what happens. We as believers, okay, adults with childlike understanding, we believe in Jesus based on what we know at this moment. And we're foolish to think that that's not gonna grow and expand. And so if, if one of my children professes Christ at seven years old and then at 17 comes home and said, now I think I'm really saved, I'm just gonna celebrate I don't know that they weren't saved, but that their understanding is growing and they're believing Jesus based on what they understand today. And that should be encouraging to you as an adult who are sitting there going, I don't know much about the Bible. I don't know much about God. It's okay. We've presented enough that you would believe.